independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. You don't find monocultures in nature. You find very, very diverse ecosystems. The only place you find monocultures is where man put them. And nature functions best under this diversity and diversity of both plants, animals, and also insects. Why do we need to stop focusing on yield as the ultimate measurement in food production in spite of our growing populations? And how does the presence of insects and animals on our farms support agroecology and regenerate more biodiversity on our farmlands? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons and Buns, a community where people meet every day to trade things like clothing, houseplants, furniture, and art. You can check it out first by downloading the app Buns, that's spelled B-U-N-Z on your smartphone, and I'll tell you more later. For now, to our conversation with Gabe Brown, the author of Dirt to Soil, the owner and operator of Brown's Ranch, and an award-winning farmer and leader in regenerative agriculture systems. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. A little bit about my story. I grew up in town. I wasn't from a farmer ranch, but I took an interest in production agriculture when I was in the eighth grade, ninth grade, taking vocational agriculture classes. And I was fortunate enough, I actually went to college to become an agriculture education instructor. And I fell in love and married a gal whose parents had a farm and was fortunate enough that we were able to move back onto that and then eventually purchase it from them. So We started out farming conventionally because that's what my in-laws did. They farmed conventionally, heavy tillage, moderate use of synthetics. By that, I mean fertilizer and and, uh, herbicides. But they were heavy, heavy tillage, not a lot of diversity in the crop rotation. And I learned alongside them for about eight years. And then my wife and I had the opportunity in 1991 to purchase a portion of the farm from them. And so at that time, I had been farming, renting some land on my own, and I was seeing that things just weren't quite working real well. We were putting a lot of dollars into inputs, but not getting a large enough return to make it pay. So I had read about no-till farming and the, the practice of not tilling the soil. So in 1993, I purchased a no-till drill. In 1994, we 
started no-tilling all of our land. And this is an implement that allows you to go in and directly seed into the soil with very, very minimal soil disturbance. So our land that we farm has not been tilled since 1993. It's been 100% zero till from 1994 on. And that worked very well the first couple of years. And then we were met with a series of four years in a row. 1995, uh, we lost 100% of our crop to hailstorm. Mm. 1996, we lost 100% again. And I was having, of course, if you don't have a crop, you're not able to pay the bank back for operating loans. And so the bank wasn't going to loan me any more money. So I had to figure out how am I going to make this soil productive and profitable without all those added inputs. So I started dabbling, diversifying the crop rotation, growing different crops, started to grow what's now known as cover crops. And I was at that time just doing it as a way to get forage and feed for my livestock. 1996 came along and we had a major drought in the area. Nobody combined an acre. So that was our third year of no crop. And then 1998 came along and we lost 80% of our crop to hail. So I went four years without <laughs> very much crop income at all. And I tell people it was really hard to go through that, but it was absolutely the best thing that could have happened to us. Because what I tell people, the good Lord was just teaching me how to use the principles of nature. And so I've been on this 20 plus year journey since then of how do I work with nature instead of against her? And what I and others discovered over that time period was that there's basically five principles that work anywhere in the world where there's dry land production, agriculture, uh, farming. And those principles are simply, number one, least amount of mechanical and chemical disturbance possible. We don't want to till the soil and we don't want to lar use large amounts of these chemical inputs, whether it be fertilizers or herbicides or pesticides or fungicides. Mm. The second principle is simply you need armor or skin on the soil surface. You have to keep the soil covered. And you look at today, many of our fields in production agriculture are tilled up. Then the fields are prone to wind erosion, prone to water erosion, and they crust. And what rain does fall is not able to penetrate into the soil. And instead, it runs off and taking with it that precious layer of topsoil, and we have all this erosion. It also takes with it all the nutrients that have been applied, and then we end up with all these nitrate and phosphorus problems in all of our watersheds. And then the third principle is that of diversity. You know, you don't find monocultures in nature. You find very, very diverse ecosystems. The only place you find monocultures is where man put them. And nature functions best under this diversity and diversity of both plants, animals, and also insects. The fourth principle is a living plant in the soil as long as possible throughout the year. And, you know, I live here in North Dakota, the Northern Plains. So in April, we can still have snow on the ground. And yet you'll have crocuses and these plants poking up through the snow. And then in late fall, early winter, uh, it can be freezing regularly every night, but we still have green growing plants. And that's nature's way of cycling 
all this carbon and other nutrients out of the atmosphere and pumping it into the soil to feed biology. Mm. And then the fifth principle is animal integration. You know, nature just does not farm without animals. And unfortunately today, many people, they think the best thing we can do is remove animals off the landscape. And that's actually the worst thing we can do. It'll lead to much faster desertification if we do that, because these ecosystems evolved over time with with animals living in harmony with them. And it's very, very important to have the grazing ruminants out on the landscape grazing those plants. When they do, those plants then take in much more CO2 out of the atmosphere and pump it into the soil. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons we have this this uh, terrible problem right now with way too much CO2 in the atmosphere and not enough carbon in the soil. So it's not possible to have healthy regenerative farms without the presence of farm animals. No, I'm not saying it's not possible, but what I tell people is, and I strongly encourage all homeowners who have a garden or a flower bed to use these same principles. Now, obviously, they're not going to have animal impact, but they're going to have insects. You know, and we don't need to be out there spraying these pesticides to kill all the insects. In larger scale production agriculture, can we have a healthy ecosystem without animals? Yes, but it will never be as healthy as if we did have animals in the system. Mm. I've seen that on my own ranch. We have, we're located actually in the city of Bismarck's jurisdiction. And I have some farmland that's surrounded by housing developments. It's just not practical to run livestock on those acres. We have healthy soils on those acres, but it will never be as healthy as the soils where we're able to, to graze animals on it. Mm. So why do you think cows or other farm animals have been demonized in conversations to do with addressing climate change when they're beneficial to our farms if we had them in the right way? That's a very good question. And it's not the animal's fault. It's the farm manager's fault. Mm. We have used those animals in an inappropriate way. You take in the Western United States, for instance, they do what's called set stocking. They, they put cows out on the landscape and they leave them there for the entire grazing season. Well, what happens is the animals, just like humans, we prefer certain things in our diet. The animals do too, and they're going to overgraze those areas, thus killing off over time the beneficial species. And then you get more bare soil, which will lead to wind erosion, water erosion, etc. The other thing we're doing and why uh, animals are, are villainized is the CAFOs. We've put all these animals in confinement, whether it be beef feedlots or the large dairies or hog confinements, poultry confinements. That's not allowing those animals to work in harmony with the ecosystem. And that's what's giving animals the bad rap. If we take those animals out of those situations and put them back on the landscape and then graze them appropriately and use them appropriately, we will see a beneficial response to our resource. 
So it sounds like you personally came to the revelation of regenerative agriculture almost through desperation. But how common is it for other farmers to be facing a situation like you did, where they're putting a lot of inputs but not getting enough outputs, and where banks aren't giving them loans anymore? How common is that, and what do others do when they aren't able to stumble across or learn what it takes to regenerate their lands as you have? Yes, and realize this is a 20-plus-year journey I've been on. Now what we're seeing is, and it's not just me alone. There's other people in virtually every state in the United States and across Canada and Mexico and elsewhere around the world who are, who are doing this, and we've all come about it in different ways, but we've all come to see those five principles work everywhere. Now, I spend a great deal of my time now traveling throughout the world, visiting with farmers, ranchers, anyone who will listen about these principles of a healthy ecosystem. And what we're seeing now is there's very, very low commodity prices in agriculture. And we're on the the cusp of a, a very scary time in agriculture from the standpoint financially, there's hardly a crop that you can put in right now and sell into the commodity market that's going to show a profit. Mm -hmm. And so we have a lot of farmers and ranchers that are looking for ways to make money. And my partners and I have a business called Understanding Ag, where we work directly consulting with these individuals as to how they can move their operation down the regenerative path. And once you start working with these principles, then profitability comes about because of it, because we're cutting back on all these expensive inputs and we're focusing on how nature functions. And I'll, gi I'll give you an example of that. For instance, if you take a plant, any type of plant, I don't care if it's a tomato or a corn plant, it doesn't matter, and you dry that plant out, you know, let it just dry up, cut it off and let it dry up. What's remaining there? About 97% of that is carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, and nitrogen. Well, what do those four elements have in common? They are all found in the air, the air that we breathe. And they're all more or less available free to any of us, whether we're growing a garden or a flower bed or whether we're in production agriculture. All we need to do is grow things. So what we're focused on in regenerative ag is how do we use these principles to cycle those nutrients, and it is a cycle, and get that carbon back into the soil where it can feed biology and we can have clean air and clean water all through regenerative agriculture. And if we do that, we'll bring profitability back into our farms and ranches. And not only that, we're going to be producing food of higher nutrient density. And there's a lot of groups right now that are working on that, that are quantifying the benefits to our food system and to our health as humans by growing our food in these regenerative manners. Do we know what percentage of farmers today farm through the conventional methods versus organically versus regeneratively? Because there's still maybe a difference between organic versus regenerative, correct? You're, you're absolutely right. That is correct. And what my business and partners and I like to say is we really don't like when 
people categorize and try and separate themselves. We want to work with everybody and move everybody forward. Today, approximately 3%, as is approximately, of the land is being farmed organically. And then about 97% is being farmed, quote unquote, conventionally. Now, what's being farmed regeneratively? It's probably less than 2% at the time, although no one has quantified those figures. Mm -hmm. Now, you might say, well, what's the difference between organic and regenerative? And I tell people, organic may or may not be regenerative. Conventional may or may not be regenerative. You know, what are we doing for the resource? And the issue with organic is we use too much tillage. And that tillage actually destroys the soil ecosystem. And think, for instance, most of us are familiar with gardens. Well, so often, what does a gardener do in the spring? They go out and they rototill their soil. Well, that's absolutely one of the worst things you can do for the nutrient density of the vegetables and other produce that you're going to grow in that garden. Because how do the plants get nutrients? They get their nutrients via the biology in the soil. Well, by rototilling, you're destroying that habitat for that soil biology. Those plants then are gonna, not going to have access to all the nutrients they need. Thus, they're going to be lower in nutrient density themselves. And I think that's one of the travesties that's occurring right now is that the food that's produced today all around the world is much, much lower in nutrient density than it was 50 years ago. And that contributes to so much of the human health crisis that we have in around the world. On that note, here are some numbers that you've provided in terms of the nutrient decline within our vegetables from your book. Copper down 24 to 75 percent, calcium levels down 46 percent, iron 27 to 50 percent, magnesium 10 to 24 percent, potassium 16 percent. And there's also another study that shows that we need to eat eight oranges today to get the same amount of vitamin A as our grandparents did with one. And this also extends to the health of our animal products as well. So you mentioned that meat from factory farms have less healthy lipid profiles. So the ratio of omega-6 to omega Omega-3 compared to grass-fed meat that have healthier lipid profiles. And I personally read studies that show the same thing to do with dairy and eggs as well. So there's definitely a key difference in the nutrition levels within our foods based on how they were grown or raised. So with this in mind, do you see a way in which we can be placing value on the nutrition levels within our foods as opposed to yield? Or how else can we move forward to ensure that we prioritize the health of our farmlands and therefore our public health as well? That, that's a great, great question. And fortunately, we're seeing more and more healthcare professionals realize the importance of soil health and the factor, the role that it plays in human health. I'm involved with several companies right now that are doing studies on the nutrient profiles in what we're producing, both on regenerative farms and ranches, organic farms, and quote-unquote conventional farms. And so I think in the, in the near term, not too distant future, we're going to be able to quantify the nutrients that are being produced and that occur in various grains, vegetables, meats, et cetera, and then 
we're, our hope is that it will drive change. Because if you give the consumer a choice and say, okay, you can buy this carrot and here's the nutrient profile of it, or you can buy this carrot with a much higher nutrient profile, well, food is health. And we need to think of food as health. Unfortunately, the majority of people today don't think of it that way. And I often make the comment that I honestly believe a very small percentage of consumers have really tasted nutrient-dense food. Because when you taste nutrient-dense food, your body will know it. And it'll crave more of that food. We're just consuming by and large commodities today. I just talked to an individual here last week who is running tests on carrots produced in different production models. And they found the phenols, when phenols are plant secondary metabolites that are really needed to drive human health, they found that the phenols in the carrots produced in a regenerative manner were 2,000 times higher than those produced in a conventional manner. I mean, that's huge. And as we get more and more of this information out there and get it in front of the consumers, I think that's going to drive real change on the landscape. Mm. I feel like we've become really disconnected with our innate human instincts as well, because with food, we have all this junk food that's artificially made to taste good. But these are just chemical concoctions that are tricking our brains into being addicted to them. But if we were to cut out all the artificial stuff and just really tuned into our taste buds, like we know when a carrot has more nutrient levels within it because they naturally taste better, like you mentioned. You're, you're exactly right. And it's going to be a journey. So many people ask me, well, we need, we need the government to change things. Government because of the ebbs and flows of the political winds, we're not going to change government. What It's going to have to be a consumer-driven change. Mm. The consumers can make a large difference by the way they use their purchasing dollar. They need to support farms and ranches that are using these regenerative practices to grow nutrient-dense food. Once they start doing that, we'll see a, a faster and faster change occurring in agriculture. Well, on this note, are there any existing farm bill policies, laws, or regulations that may be currently incentivizing the extractive methods that we should try to get rid of? Well, there's many. I, <laughs> I, I have been very, very outspoken against the current farm program. There's some good things in it in things that are happening with the Natural Resource Conservation Service, some of the programs they offer, and there's some very harmful things. I have been outspoken against the crop insurance, revenue insurance program. It was put in place as a floor for prices that farmers and ranchers receive for their commodities. But what it's really done is it's driven us further down this monoculture production path. And I'm a believer we need to get rid of that. We need to to let the free market, so to speak, take its place and drive farmers and ranchers into diversifying their operations, having much more diverse income streams, whether they grow different crops, have different livestock, 
And that would actually be more beneficial in the long run for both profitability for a farm and ranch and for regenerating our resources. Mm. And since it takes some time to transition conventional farms to regenerative farms, how can we support that transition since it takes some time to do so? This is one thing that is not very well understood. People tend to think that, oh, okay, I want to farm regeneratively, but how am I going to get through years of, of lower production? Well, my business and partners and I, right now we're consulting on about uh, three and a half million acres across North America. Wow. And we have yet to not show increased profitability on any farm or ranch we work with in the first year. So we can be more profitable in year one. And usually by year three, you're seeing significant changes to the soil ecosystem itself and to farm profitability. So I don't think that's as necessary as a lot of people think it is. You know, it's just a matter of understanding how ecosystems function and then applying those five principles to move that forward. And a key part of this is weaning conventional farmers off of expensive equipment and also all these chemical inputs as well, because they'll be able to save on that and not have to invest so much in that. That's correct. And one of the things that we as a business help farmers do is understand the principles. And so often farmers have been taught that it's all about the chemical and physical properties of the soil. And they think, well, we can take a soil test and it'll show I got X amount of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, etc. But what hasn't been taken into account is the biological component of the soil. And it's really the biology that drives the nutrient cycle. You know, if you have healthy soil, there's more microorganisms in a teaspoonful of healthy soil than there are people on this world. Hmm. But how many farmers and ranchers or gardeners think of that? They don't think about the soil biology. Well, there's a now soil tests out there, the Haney soil test, that can give a good indication of the amount of biology you have in the soil and then the amount of organic forms of nutrients that that biology is going to make available to the plants. Once we find that out, we're able to start saving most farmers and ranchers dollars immediately. The other thing is a lot of times when I tell people that the conventional method is solely focused on maximizing yield and treating the land like a machine with inputs and outputs, rather than looking at the land like a holistic ecosystem, I get responses like, oh, but we need to feed an increasing <laughs> population around the world. How do you respond to that? Yeah, then that's a question I always get also. And I tell people, okay, last figures I heard there's approximately 7.2 billion people on this planet, okay? Last year, we produced enough food in this world to feed 10.2 billion people. <laughs> We're already producing way over enough to feed the entire world. Now, unfortunately, there, there are some real issues with logistics and getting food into the hands of people who need it. But this comes down to that's not a problem of production. 
And when I talk to farmers and ranchers, I show them these statistics and I say, you're kidding yourselves if you think a growing population is going to cure low prices. It's not because we're already producing enough. You know, there, there's absolutely no problem with producing enough food. And you're absolutely right when you say it's all about yield, 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 whether it be pounds of carrots, pounds, bushels of wheat or pounds of beef. It doesn't matter. It's all about yield. Well, what we're encouraging farmers and ranchers to do is let's look at it from a profitability standpoint. And Dr. Jonathan Lundgren did some really fascinating work with a graduate student of his, Claire Lacan, and they looked at they looked at regenerative farms and ranches in a five-state area, and they compared that to neighboring conventional farms and ranches. And what they found out was that although yield in in bushels or pounds was higher on the conventional farms, profitability was almost three times higher on the regenerative farms and ranches. So we're able to heal the ecosystem while producing food at higher nutrient density while being more profitable to the farmer or rancher. Hmm. So win, win, win situation. And the last thing I want to touch on is agrobiodiversity. So there are additional sobering statistics from your book that we've lost over 90% of vegetable seed varieties in the 20th century. We used to have 550 varieties of cabbages, and today we have 28. For beets, we went from 288 to now only 17. Cauliflower from 150 to 9. And corn, we've lost 96% of variety at the start of the 20th century. What has primarily been driving this agro? biodiversity loss among our food sources. Oh, that, yes, you're absolutely right. And we're seeing that, you know, a a study just recently released out of Germany showed they've lost 75% of their insect population in the last 25 years. I mean, that's startling. If we don't have insects, we're, we're not going to survive as, as a species. And what's driving it is the current production model that focused on yield the focus on yield and pounds. And what occurs when we do that is this over-application of all these different synthetics. And it's driving this, this loss of biodiversity. So using my own ranch as an example, we have documented in some of our, our pasture lands, our grazing lands, over 140 different species of plants growing out there on each acre. I mean, that is tremendous amount of diversity. And what we're seeing, if we start managing our farms and ranches as an ecosystem, we have a rapid increase in biodiversity. It's a haven for all these insects and birds and wildlife and then plant species. You know, there's seed laying in the latent seed bank that only needs the proper stimulation, usually with proper grazing of animals in order for that seed to germinate and grow. And we're seeing species of plants that we've never seen before on this ranch. Mm. And so it's all about a change and, and a change in mindset. Is it possible to bring back varieties that have been lost? Or for us, is it primarily right now just about preserving the varieties that we have left? Let's be honest. Some of the, the varieties we will not be able to bring back 
but there's a latent seed bank there. We're seeing from some of our clients that plants growing in areas that nobody has seen those plants for 50 or more years. It's all about proper, I like to call it stewardship. Some might call it management. If we change our stewardship of the land, truly start caring for it, we're going to be able to stimulate that latent seed bank. So we'll get some of it back. And, you know, whether these insect species and, and animal species are truly extinct, well, I'm sure some of them are. But I'm sure a lot of them still exist in, in numbers where we can bring them back if we provide the home and habitat for them. Mm. Well, with the holistic benefits that regenerative agriculture provides to public health, to the health of our entire planet and every living species on it, what do you think we need most today to be able to transition towards that as the norm as quickly as possible? I think the big thing, the, the number one thing we need is understanding. We need the consumers, we need the farmers, the ranchers, we need the, the lawmakers, we need everyone to understand what regenerative ag is. And I tell people, the beauty of it is it brings all facets of society together. I don't care if your interest is in climate change, too much carbon in the atmosphere, is it in environmental health? Is it in profitability of the farms and ranches? Is it in clean air, clean water, or is it in human health? Regenerative agriculture has the ability to bring all these groups together and we can address all of these ills of society if we work together in moving this forward. Do you have things like clothing, furniture, and art lying around your home that you no longer make use of, like I do? Well, what if we could exchange them for other people's items that they no longer make use of, but that we actually want? Like for me, that would always be more houseplants. When I first heard about the Buns app, I was really intrigued and excited because not only does this promote sustainability through encouraging reuse and trade, but it also fosters a sense of community with like-minded people near us. If you don't find anything that you want in exchange for what you're offering, you can also accept a currency called BITS, that's spelled B-T-Z, that you can then use at an increasing number of local partnering businesses. It takes just a few seconds to download, so head on to the App Store, search for Buns, spelled B-U-N-Z, hit download, and have fun. If you're in Southern California, you may see me on there as well, and I'll be keeping my eye out to see if you have some houseplants that you're putting up there. So I hope to see you on the app soon as well. For now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow? One I follow a lot is Acres USA. I enjoy that publication. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I just look at nature. What I do is I walk outside every day. I listen. I hear all the insects, the birds, the animals. That truly inspires me. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? I primarily eat mostly only what I grow and raise. What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? Well, the fact that I am consuming what I grow and raise, and then we recycle as much as we possibly can on our farm. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? I'm seeing the snowball finally start to roll downhill. You know, I've been 20 plus years going down this path. 
I speak to over 200 different uh, groups every year. I, I, <laughs> I travel <laughs> well over 250 days out of a year presenting to, <laughs> to farmers and ranchers. And the snowballs start finally starting to roll downhill. Regenerative ag, nobody knew what it was hardly 10 years ago. Now you, you see it every day in different farm publications, news media, you know, such as yourself, you're talking to regenerative agriculture. That gives me a lot of hope. Mm. Well, we would, of course, love to keep learning from you. So where can we follow you online and support your work, as well as where can we find Dirt to Soil, your book? So my book's available uh, at many different media outlets. Uh, ChelseaGreen.com has it available for sale. You can follow me through my website, brownsranch.us, or our business's website, understandingag.com. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? What I really encourage you to do is to do something. Make a difference. Never stop learning and understanding how ecosystems function. And then share that news and knowledge with others. And then vote with your buying dollar. Never stop learning how ecosystems function, share that with those around you, and keep making your purchases count. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you immensely to our new listener patrons for supporting the show, Riza, Makoto, Jacqueline, Jordan, and Rachel. It would be an honor to have you join me on Patreon and in our network as well if you're not yet there, so if you're a regular listener or if Green Dreamer has inspired you in any way, you can now support the show and get access to bonus content starting at $1 per month. Thank you so much for being here, for your ongoing support, and for your consideration in becoming a patron. For more information, head to greendreamer.com support. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe, and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.